You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. We've recently launched a new project titled the Canadian Coalition to Counter COVID Digital Disinformation. As part of this project, we're hosting a series of town halls. For more information about the project and our upcoming events, check us out on Twitter at CounterDisinfo or on the MIGS webpage. Good afternoon. My name is Kyle Matthews. I'm executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Rights Studies. We're really pleased today to welcome you to the panel discussion, COVID-19 Disinformation and the Future of Internet Governance. Um, This is a project funded by the Governor of Canada, in particular by uh, the Canadian Department of Heritage and the Digital Citizen Initiative to build uh, knowledge and awareness of Canadian citizens about what can be done to fight disinformation surrounding COVID. So we're really pleased to welcome you all here today um, for what is a fascinating and timely discussion. Um, I'm gonna first uh, introduce our moderator, uh, Philip André Rodriguez from Global Affairs Canada will be um, moderating today's discussion. And I'm not sure I'm I'm mentioning the, the order of everyone speaking, I think I am, so apologies if I don't, but we have three distinguished, sorry, four distinguished speakers with us today. We have Tina Pernat of the World Health Organization. We have Professor Fenwick McKelvey of Concordia University. Uh, we have Elizabeth Dubois, professor at University of Ottawa. And last but not least, we have Rory Smith from First Draft News. Uh, so we have uh, four people with very different perspectives, uh, both practitioners, academics, that are gonna help us understand what's happening in the world of COVID disinformation and what can be done to deal with it related to internet governance and platform governance. So with that being said, I'd like to pass over to Philip Andre. The floor is yours, Philip. Thank you very much, uh, Kyle, uh, for this introduction and really looking forward to what should be an important uh, conversation at a very, very timely uh, moment in time. Uh, um, I think we'll, uh, without further ado, we'll, we should go directly to our, to our speakers um, for great presentations on their perspective on uh, the issue of uh, the impact of COVID-19 disinformation on internet governance and its future. So um, perhaps we can uh, start with uh, our colleague, uh, Rory. Yep. How are you doing, everyone? My name is Rory Smith, and I am the research manager at First Draft. For those of you that aren't familiar with First Draft, we do a lot of uh, research around mis- and disinformation, and we also train journalists, community leaders, and kind of practitioners uh, in this domain. So I'm going to quickly run through a little slide deck I prepared um, just on kind of the key findings that that we um, essentially thought were the most salient things after 2020. Um, So let me just click on this. So some of the top lessons learned from what we saw during the pandemic um, is one, we operated under the misconception that health misinformation is distinct from other types of misinformation. uh, And so far as we can simply rely on institutions such as WHO and scientific consensus to quickly topple falsehoods. And that platforms could do the same thing. Um, We now know that health misinformation gets quickly politicized. And what starts as a a mask mandate um, can quickly become a broader political coalition um, that unites with, you know, elements of extremist groups. And part of the reason uh, we can't treat health misinformation as distinct is because scientific consensus is hard to come by and very hard to come by in times of crisis, right? 
So scientists and, and you know, the WHO works with the best available evidence at the time, but because it's a crisis situation, because uh, medicine and specifically the COVID-19 virus is novel, um, oftentimes there are more questions than answers. And this opens the floodgates to data deficits. So what is a data deficit? Um, at first draft, we think this is an incredibly part or important kind of um, part of our landscape. And essentially what it is, is it's situations where demand for information around a specific topic is high, but credible information around that topic is low, right? So we saw this throughout the pandemic with masks, um, whether we should wear them or not, uh, is, is COVID-19 trans, is it, is kind of, is it transmitted uh, like airborne? Is airborne transmission a thing? We see it now with the mRNA vaccines um, and some of the adverse side effects that are being cited, such as infertility, Bell's palsy, um, and now the viral mutations. Now, again, because this is happening in the midst of a crisis, um, we're only so quick uh, to, to kind of create scientific consensus around studies, with studies, et cetera. In the interim, um, where there isn't consensus, again, this creates spaces or vacuums. And unfortunately, these vacuums are often filled by misinformation um, and disinformation as well. So data deficits are really, really important. And we should be thinking more about these going forward. Also, we have forgotten the importance of narratives, right? So what you see on the right is kind of a big piece of research we did around vaccine narratives. Um, and I think what we learned as an organization is that we often focus too much on the individual posts and whether they should be taken down or debunked. Um, but the individual pieces of misinformation are only the atoms of content that make up these broader narratives, right? And unlike individual posts, narratives cannot be simply debunked or labeled. Um, they are far too closely aligned with our sense of self and our sense of the world. And unfortunately, unlike a single post, uh, narratives not only can undermine trust in vaccines, uh, but also trust in science and scientific institutions. So another lesson learned is converging communities. So again and again, we've seen throughout the pandemic that seemingly incongruous communities are now converging around single issues. And that might be a Bill Gates conspiracy, that might be masks, that might be mandatory vaccines. But throughout this process, we've all seen the radicalization of certain communities, um, specifically recently the anti-vaccine uh, communities. They are more and more closely linked to right-wing elements, at least in the US. Um, and the participatory and kind of network nature of misinformation and disinformation is real. And this is what makes it so potent, right? So here I, I kind of pinched this off of uh, Neil Johnson, a physicist at uh, George Washington, who's done a lot of work around anti-vaccination communities. And what you see is, um, while these groups are smaller in size, they're more diffuse and they're interacting more with potential fence sitters, right? So the areas of engagement for these types of communities is, is much more than the actual proponents of science and vaccines, right? They might be big, but they're not engaging uh, as much as kind of networks of myths and disinformation. And that's a real problem. 
And that kind of uh, encouraged us to uh, write up a piece at the end of the last year. Um, the main finding of which was that 2020 was the year that demonstrated conclusively that effective disinformation communities are participatory networks, while quality information distribution mechanisms remain stubbornly elitist, linear, and top down, right? And so thinking ahead, we need to move away from chasing misinformation um, and acting after the fact, because after the fact is too late, and instead proactively challenge and preempt its emergence. You know, part of that has to do with identifying data deficits and then working collaboratively um, across fact-checking agencies, across newsrooms to provide debunks, uh, or sorry, pre-bunks rather, and supply quality information as soon as we spot these data deficits, right? Because the longer data deficits exist, the more room for misinformation or the more room that misinformation disinformation has to grow and expand. Um, and we also need to be looking at initiatives that are all participatory um, and involve co-creation uh, with the same communities that are being effective. Now, we, we've seen positive results from various kind of health initiatives addressing rumors around HIV and Ebola. And within the US, specifically around kind of black and Latinx communities, there has been uh, several initiatives that are they're working with groups uh, and influencers, you know, Instagram influencers, et cetera, to create positive campaigns to instill trust um, back into health institutions and vaccines here. Um, we definitely obviously need more efforts towards ensuring platform transparency. Um, including oversight committees, panels that are diverse. And I don't mean only racially and, and gender diverse, but I mean the actual people need to be historians. We need technologists. We need health practitioners. Um, the, 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 their entire kind of skill set needs to be diverse as well, right? Um, we also need to push for government to independently audit platforms. Um, and, you know, importantly, I think we forget that a lot of the misinformation that's flowing um, on social media and just across the Internet is from grifters, people that are actually monetizing misinformation and profiting from it directly. So there needs to be some type of mechanism put in place that disincentivize uh, people from making money off of misinformation. And we also know that there are PR firms these days, um, some of which are located in the US and, and in uh, uh, a lot of the advanced economies that specialize in disinformation campaigns and work closely with politicians and other interest groups. Um, so we can't forget that money is a big part of misinformation. Um, so of course we can continue pushing for access uh, to data from the platforms. That's everyone's pipe dream. Um, that's what happens with lots and lots of critical journalism, but we know how clunky and how long that process takes, right? And importantly, we need research, research, and more research. Um, you know, that's user audience research. You know, what are the facts, uh, what are the effects of fact checking labels? You know, we see that that people that from the right that are exposed to fact-checking labels um, react very kind of adversely to those things and they further entrench beliefs um, and, and kind of uh, worldviews. We don't know how fence-sitters react to misinformation and that is a very delicate and important demographic um, that is unfortunately being reached much more efficiently um, by agents of, of mis and disinformation than they are from you know, quality uh, information sources and, and health experts. And we also, we're, we're kind of in the midst of a huge experiment now um, 
which we saw in the wake of, of the storming of the Capitol, um, we don't really know what the effects of deplatforming are, right? What happens when we push extremists closer to other extremists in spaces we can no longer monitor? Um, and what happens when, you know, ex again, we push all these people off that we could monitor and now we can't. Um, so more research needs to go into all of this before we make any drastic kind of, uh, you know, take any drastic actions or push any, any kind of uh, new legislature because we really need to understand what are the possible unintended consequences of different policies and interventions. It's much more difficult to real, repeal legislation once it's instituted, and it's much harder to undo the damage done once um, kind of certain knee-jerk knee reactions are, are, are taken. And we know this, but, you know, internet governance and, and platforms, it moves slowly. Um, we know in Europe that it'll be two years really before we see much uh, out of out of kind of some of the, the more regulatory measures they're trying to pass there. In the U.S., it could take a, a long time. U.S. is a regulation averse country, um, and platforms won't budge until we put pressure on them. Right. So we need independent bodies challenging them. We need critical journalism all the time. Um, and, and while a lot of researchers, myself included, are always frustrated because we can't audit the platforms because we don't have data, we shouldn't take and we can't take a defeatist attitude on this, right? Um, yes, we need data from the platforms. Yes, it's everyone's dream. But until that happens, we can still create innovative research designs and projects. Um, for example, what Jeremy Merrill and a lot of people, um, you know, some, some members of Mozilla did with the political ad collector to get around these obstacles and hold these platforms to account. So while we need a lot of, you know, we do need internet governance to some extent, a lot of that I think is still gonna be driven from the research community and we need much more of that before anything else. Um, and again, we might not get the data, but we need to be innovative. We need to be creative in terms of how we can get those resources outside of the platforms. Um, so, that was a quick whirlwind tour uh, through some of our thoughts at first draft. Um, and I am now done presenting. Thank you guys very much. Thank you very much, Rory Smith from First Draft News. Uh, I think the idea of data deficits is definitely uh, one uh, concept uh, to which we should return uh, once we get to the Q&A. Uh, but for now, let's, let's turn to uh, Tina Pernat from the World Health Organization. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Actually, um, it's uh, it's it's quite a pleasure to follow up uh, after Rory's presentation because he uh, he did actually touch base also on on uh, many of the lessons learned from the last year and actually also previous work in public health uh, that uh, we've also seen. Um, and uh, I would uh, I probably won't be. Um, uh, saying that much different things, maybe just from the point of view, if you allow me, from point of view of public health and health, and and how misinformation uh, uh, relates to uh, to this. Um, so, um, you probably have heard the term the info infodemic in the last year, and at, at WHO, we talk about an infodemic as a uh, as a tsunami of information, uh, and some of it is uh, accurate, some of it is uh, not and is of lower quality, and this uh, uh, spreads alongside a disease outbreak. And this is really uh, important from the point of view of the context that also Rory was referring to in an emergency 
because uh, it's not just a matter of an information environment that we're living in uh, uh, today, but also that the context uh, and the emergency situation that we're all experiencing also on a daily basis does affect also how misinformation affects us uh, um, and how we use the information environment, interact with it, uh, which of course the, the online social media platforms and the online environment is a part of it. But infodemics are not a new phenomenon. We have in public health um, uh, observed them before. Uh, so at, at the beginning of, um, uh, of last year uh, with the emergence of, of COVID-19, we did uh, WHO already at that time uh, to a certain extent, expect that this would be a challenge. We just didn't ex uh, expect to the extent uh, uh, of this. Um, and really, you know, if you live in a country that's connected to an internet or you uh, are part of a community uh, that um, uh, is somehow connected to, to internet and the online uh, information exchange, you're, you are probably living in an infodemic. So really, too much information and misinformation make up an infodemic, and it affects our behaviors. Now, uh, but we there's a couple of things that I would like to add. You know, we need to remember that misinformation can impact people offline too. Uh, um, what makes misinformation dangerous is when it amplifies and it expands. It actually mutates and accelerates online. Uh, uh, due to, also to the fact that everyone is an author, editor, producer of information and you have a potential audience of millions and those are the dynamics that do uh that that do uh contribute to the challenge uh so when one thinks about the governance um i would uh, agree with rory um uh there's no one uh solution uh to to dealing with with the challenge uh, of of um, misinformation and its harmful effects now from the point of view of health infodemics uh, the reason why we care about this and uh, it's because infodemics can either intensify or lengthen outbreaks. If enough people change their behavior based on the misinformation or the lack of trust. Um, so, um, and we've experienced all of this uh, ourselves, I think. Uh, and this is the reason why uh, these con uh, the conversations also that we have today uh, are so important because they, uh, we've also gotten to the point where we're, we're starting to reflect uh, that this is actually not just a challenge in a health, uh, in a health domain, but uh, you know, we're also reflecting it as, as, a, as a societal uh, problem. Now, um, a couple of things perhaps. Um, you know, in public health, we talk about specific characteristics such as pre-existing health condition or an environmental factor. Uh, that may make someone more vulnerable to disease or health, adverse health outcomes when there's an emergency. So if you look at the analog, uh, analogous there, there's also people who may be more vulnerable to misinformation. Uh, so when if people act on limited information or misinformation, it can result in social harms. Uh, and that can also encourage stigma or violence or it can harm their own health. So uh, for, for different reasons, um, this is a very serious, um, uh, serious part now of, of challenges that health authorities, public health community is also uh, um, um, uh, has reflected on, has tried to uh, deal with. Um, and um, longer term, and the reason why also the governance, but also uh, the concrete um, 
uh, uh, actions or interventions that we, uh, uh, as as participants in in the information ecosystem, can do. Why this is important is because really the impact of misinformation on societies is really ultimately growing mistrust. And even you know in public health, trust is essential to epidemic response. So if the trust is eroded, it becomes more difficult to lead an effective global and coordinated response. People don't believe in the effectiveness of interventions. They may even question their institutions, their leaders, their experts. And uh, that really can destroy the social fabric of society and its cohesiveness. So um, there's a couple of things that we've learned already over the last year. One, uh, really, that uh, we need to really look at the response to the infodemic in general and how it, it affects uh, us all individually in community level and as our society really as a whole what we call a whole society approach so it impacts parts of society therefore we really need to all be involved and uh um we've seen some uh, uh good efforts both from from media and journalism sector from fact checking groups uh social media platforms to a certain extent um uh, but then, you know, uh, educational systems need to longer term uh, teach health and digital literacy to all of us. Um, we also uh, uh, really see uh, that um, where the harm and where the misinformation proliferates is, is really at individual and community level. Therefore, actually, the biggest response and the biggest resilience that we need to build and literacy that we need to build and, and self-efficacy that we need to build is actually at, at community and individual level. Um, uh, and there are actually now examples coming up uh, uh, out of this and, you know, most vulnerable populations, most vulnerable groups to misinformation, they are prey to or they uh, they are vulnerable uh, to a, uh, misinformation also specifically because very often misinformation is formulated um, and uh, by the type of content and media that actually does evoke more emotion, is more personal and, and uh, has the characteristics that Rory already described. Now, specifically about internet governance and maybe even more specifically about social media platforms and their role, um, what I can, uh, in public health, we've really seen that coercive measures rarely work to promote public health. And same applies to misinformation management. Uh, just because some misinformation is taken down or notorious spreaders are deplatforms, this doesn't address the underlying anxieties and concerns and questions that people have that made misinformation spread easier in the first place. So I would agree, uh, as a final comment with Rory, uh, that we really do need to do more research and uh, really need to be very carefully considering um, what kind of evidence, what, ki what kind of uh, evidence do we actually have to undertake certain, you know, uh, uh, big policy decisions or recommendations? And, um, and we really need to evaluate um, any actions uh, that are being take undertaken also for not just whether they, they resulted in what we thought they would, but also whether there were any under unintended harms. And um, uh, because uh, trust and information and access and information are all also intertwined with also people's empowerment, not just to take care of themselves and protect themselves, their health, but also uh, give them power. Um, access information uh, can 
uh, and the right of access information to health information is really, really important to keep in um, any actions or any policy actions in, in that regard really needs to be um, sort of biased towards preserving that versus um, versus cumbering uh, com access uh, to that. So I would stop here. Thank you. And I look forward to the discussion. Thank you very much, uh, Tina uh, Pernat from uh, the World Health Organization. Um, I think one salient point uh, which uh, policymakers are really grappling with is, as you said, the real offline uh, impact that this information has and the ways in which uh, COVID-19 has made this uh, really uh, a significant reality uh, on a day-to-day -day basis for many people worldwide. So thank you very much for, for that intervention. Uh, next, we'll turn to Fenwick McKelvey from Concordia University. Fenwick? Uh, thank you very much. And um, yeah, I think to just begin, I want to say, okay, just double check it, I'm not muted. Um, you know, I'm looking forward to this conversation because I, I come from a background largely dealing with communication policy in Canada, and I'm really trying to think through what would be a kind of full stack approach to this concerns about COVID-19 and disinformation. So I think, you know, what we're hearing, and I really appreciate from my fellow commentators, is the idea of trying to think about these these questions of digital divides, as we'd call them, the kind of the deeper, you know, structural issues at work here. And to me, COVID-19 comes at a time when we've talked about, um, you know, growing inequity as well as um, unsettled matters of uh, truth and reconciliation in Canada. And I think, uh, you know, decades long a perspective on media and media governments from a perspective of regulatory liberalism and I think market-oriented solutions. And so what we see here is I think some of the challenges really made abundantly clear about the limitations of this, this kind of policy framework. And so what I think about in particular is how do we firstly talk about uh, the appropriateness of different proactive actions addressing some of these concerns? What are the ways at uh, in terms of access where we can ensure that people um, ha you know, have access to the internet, have access to be able to participate or work from home or work in safe spaces um, rather than having to kind of go in and commute. So how do you talk about this as, you know, one about equity and access and certain layers and then closer to the social, you know, closer to social media or higher up the stack, you know, what are the responsibilities of platforms dealing with this content moderation issue? So I think one thing I'd like to encourage in this discussion is, to, you know, how do we think about internet governance as a kind of wide spectrum, but what are the different layers that are appropriateness in talking about a COVID-19 strategy? Uh, the second point I want to echo um, comments talking about these kind of underlying issues of information, of uh, underlying issues around disinformation. I think often we talk about this as a supply and demand issue. What creates the desires for disinformation? And in uh, my own work, I've really studied meme communities uh, with my students, uh, Scott Dijon and Seskia Kolochek, talking about how meme groups have reacted to this. And I think that in our own observations, we can draw some nuance on how we talk about politicization, uh, particularly that COVID-19 was politicized by all sorts of different partisan actors. And some, I think, were quite helpfully politicized, saying whether the governments are being effective in their COVID-19 strategy. And yet we can see, and particularly uh, kind of, you know, parts of the Facebook that we look at, kind of anti-Trudeau, um, right, you know, emergent right-wing libertarian thinking, uh, there's a way of framing and delegitimating 
uh, attaching COVID-19 to larger conspiratorial, you know, conspiracy theories. And in that sense, it's important to look at what are the deeper stories, one of the uh, existing partisan and political communities that are doing that work of interpretation and looking at the way that COVID-19 is particularly being politicized in ways that are problematic or anti-democratic or unhelpful in reconciling. So trying to say that there is at one point a legitimate need to politicize this issue, but then also looking at what are those communities that are really um, politicizing COVID-19 in kind of problematic ways. So I think my concluding points are then one, you know, how do we talk about COVID-19 as a way of dealing with the legacy of a particular paradigm of media governance and the kind of consequences and digital divides that's created? And then second, how do we think about COVID-19 as part of deeper stories and deeper structural inequities in which communications is taking place and happening. And with that, I'll leave it to uh, pass it over to my fantastic colleague, Elizabeth Dubois, uh, and look forward to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited to be part of this conversation as well. And, and everything that's already been said, uh, you know, I agree with a lot of it. And it's, I think, really important points to be making. I, I wanted to spend kind of my intro minutes talking a little bit about what we've learned so far through the pandemic and through the, the ways that platforms have and haven't been able to deal with disinformation and the responses of the other actors within an ecosystem. So a bit of background on me and my research, I actually look at how people form their political opinions and the role of different technologies in that process. And so I've looked at the digital ecosystem with actors like politicians and journalists and civil society groups and tech platforms in the 2019 election. I've also looked at examples of echo chambers, the idea that, you know, we're encountering only information that confirms our existing beliefs because of the media we choose to, to consume. And, and that kind of research predates COVID, obviously, um, but a lot of the patterns in disinformation and the ways we talk about dealing with disinformation are, are really similar. And so I think the first lesson that we've learned is Platforms actually can do quite a lot quite quickly, like the technical ability of platforms to flag things, take things down, get rid of accounts that are problematic. That is something that for a long time we were told is just difficult to do, technically impossible, too hard. Well, what we saw with the, the kind of real physical health implications of COVID-19 disinformation is that actually you can take things down quickly. You can flag things quickly. But we also see that there are a lot of false positives with that. So we accidentally see labels or we see labels that are accidentally on content that shouldn't be labeled necessarily or things get taken down even if they're not necessarily harmful uh, as a precaution. We also see that this really fast approach has led to an increase in a already pretty dismal lack of transparency and accountability for what these platforms are doing. These platforms by design control the flow of information in our systems and we rely on them to make good choices about what information to push to us and what information to not push to us. That is the value that they offer us. And so we know that that control is gonna happen if we don't have good measures in place to ensure transparency and accountability, we are in trouble. If you pair that with a lack of particularly local journalism, but we can say journalism more broadly, that's equipped with the tools they need to do deep investigations, we risk not really knowing why information is being uh, controlled in a particular way, which poses a problem, right? Like 
yes, disinformation is a problem, but not understanding why there isn't disinformation in our feed is also an issue potentially, particularly if things are getting taken down precautionarily. I'd also say that we've learned that a lot of this conversation, which has centered largely on content moderation for a long time, is too narrow. So Rory talked a little bit about needing to look at themes, not just particular pieces. Uh, I think I would push that even further to say we also need to be thinking about the technical infrastructures of these platforms and the affordances they offer, so the things that they allow us to do and, and the things they incentivize us to do. We also need to think about the business models of these platforms, because at the end of the day, if a company makes money by sharing disinformation and getting lots of clicks and ad dollars, they're probably going to keep doing it unless there's very compelling legal reasons for them not to do it. And so these things together, I think, help us understand a larger ecosystem of, of political information, of health information, uh, which often has some disinformation, some misinformation, some rumors, all intermingled with the, th the facts. And so before I end and, and kind of we go into the discussion, which I am very excited about, I thought I would just make a couple of notes on some of the, the kinds of key policy recommendations that I think are important when we're talking about platform governance. So one is, I don't think we should be thinking about platform governance as just the relationship between the government and a platform. We need to be thinking about, yes, that relationship, but also the ways that people are making use of those platforms, the ways they're incorporated into their daily lives. Recognizing that many of these platforms are core sources of information means that we need to think about platforms as those key utilities and not just as some average private company. I think we also need to be thinking about the role of journalism in this process because journalists still have a lot of trust within the Canadian media system and are really essential for either amplifying or stifling conspiracy theories and other forms of disinformation. And then once we've acknowledge that we're in this ecosystem, I think we need to be looking at things like making sure we're supporting the various civil society groups who have been calling for increased transparency and accountability of these platforms. But I think we also need to be trying to tackle those things like the affordances and the business models of these platforms to try and incentivize through regulation ones that are going to be more responsive to the needs of people. Because right now, most of these companies are making choices based on the fact that they are large multinational companies based in the US, where they see the US and EU regulation as the dominant forces and Canadian regulation is not necessarily the, uh, the top of the line in terms of what they're trying to address. So I think I'll leave it there so we have time for lots of discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. So um, I think one key takeaway I get from this conversation is really um, attention that we, we often face, they feel uh, in policy circles, which is really this, uh, this uh, on the one hand, what Rory was saying wrong, we need more research, research, research before we, before we can intervene properly uh, as a government. And on the other hand, uh, a little bit what Tina said, that there is the, we feel these real life impacts of disinformation and we feel this, this pressure uh, internationally to act, act, act and act. Um, and and this this kind of uh, this tension between the need for more information on the one hand and the need for for action creates 
the kind of uh, uh, atmosphere in governments that sometimes do not lend itself to great results, as we've seen in other contexts where some decisions were made in terms of how to address um, disinformation in ways that were probably, um, let's say, suboptimal. Um, and so perhaps I, I'd like to just push on this point of how can we make um, you know, policy make, making more uh, agile, flexible in an environment where information is incomplete? And perhaps I, I, I turn uh, to Rory first, given that the, the research point was uh, the one you, you made first. Yeah, so I just had to unmute myself there quickly. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a good question. And again, it's 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 always completely contextual. You know, in the US, the issue is, you know, Section 230, right? That's, that's what's being debated right now. Um, and I'm afraid that there is going to be some knee-jerk reaction um, based not on good research and evidence, but based off of the events that unfolded, unfortunately, two weeks ago. Um, so I, again, I think we have to understand that in order to make the best decisions, we there's so many unknowns still about what anything implemented might result in. And I, I would just I would just caution um, against doing anything slapdash um, because of that, um, because you know we could further entrench power in those that are the most powerful, right? Um, so that's again the issue of 230. If we get rid of that, only the big companies have the ability to filter um, kind of uh, posts and content that could get them in trouble, um, while the smaller actors don't have the affordances that these big companies have. So, so, so again, essentially what I mean there is that they they will remain in place and they will arguably could get stronger. Um, so the idea that there will be more competition um, is being hotly debated right now because it's unclear whether it will be a more competitive environment um, or whether it will be the absolute reverse. Uh, but again, yeah, when it when it comes to Canada, unfortunately, I can't, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm not too familiar with what's going on in Canada. But it, again, um, research is is needed and there are a host of questions when it comes to kind of policy uh measures at the top level that need to be you know negotiated but again i think always you know um robust journalism has you know it still holds a lot of power um and i think what's been you know, positive, or, and, and what I see to be a kind of a net gain over the last two years is how many journalists now are specializing in this and, and how much more informed we are about what is going on uh, around the platforms as we, you know, compared to like two or three years ago. Um, and that there is a more robust civil society um, that are kind of engaging with these issues. Um, and that we are building up more, more kind of robust fact-checking institutions. Um, so, I mean, I guess as I'm just long and sprawling and there, and there are lots of things there. Um, I think I would say from governance, I, I, I think it has to come first from civil society. And I see still that a lot of journalists, fact-checking organizations and civil society organizations are, are kind of siloed. Um, and aren't necessarily working in unison. And what we see there are tons of, of, of kind of duplication, um, whereas we could streamline our approach as well um, and, and kind of create a more powerful contingent from civil society to combat the platforms and negotiate much more progressive policy from, from the, the governance side of things. Um, perhaps we could have uh, either Fenwick or Elizabeth if you have more of a Canadian uh, perspective on uh, on this question. 
we have to a certain extent, you know, limitations on what what our ideal responses would be, right? Like, yes, we always want to have as much evidence as possible, as much research done as possible uh, before we make choices. We don't want to make knee-jerk uh, decisions, particularly because once certain policies are set in place, they can be difficult to kind of track back on. At the other side of things, there are, uh, you know, there are times where we just need to make choices. And I think that COVID disinformation was a good example of, well, we need people to not be drinking bleach, right? We need, we need people to social distance properly. And so sometimes choices need to be made more quickly. Uh, I think that in Canada, we have the example of how our Election Modernization Act went forward, where what ultimately ended up in that amendment to our election laws has, I think, served the Canadian public well in that it has fixed some of the issues that a new digital ecosystem creates and, and the, the opportunities for problems within the election, like it, it closed down some of those issues, but uh, there's still much more that needs to be done, right? There's still, and, and there's research that was available at the time and there's already new research that is telling us there are new things that need to be done to address how our elections run. And, and I think that we'll be in a similar position kind of forever when we're talking about the way information flows through our systems because these systems, which are technological in some part at least, they are ever evolving, right? We don't have a static internet. We don't have a static set of apps or platforms available to us. They're going to evolve. The way we use them is going to evolve. And so we need to recognize that policymaking needs to address that uh, that variation and, and plan for it. We need to be ready for it because there is never going to be a point where we are, okay, we know everything. We're ready to make the decisions now. And I'll, you know, I think Elizabeth makes a great point about the capacity of platforms to act. And so I think the, the point I'd like to, to argue is that um, the conditions of the American context are, are dealing with the American uh, media discourse, regulatory discourse, I think it impedes and kind of limits uh, that imagination. And we don't necessarily have that same problem in Canada. And I think one thing that I've heard uh, consistently is this idea of access to good information. I think one of the shortcomings that we've often had about the digital divide is that so long as people have access, then that solves this problem. And what becomes really apparently clear is that once people get online, they have a number of different information sources to choose from. And where are the institutions that are producing good public information? And so we know from research in the past that public broadcasting and public media has an important function in dealing with polarization in societies and also at least increasing some of the kind of media habits, or improving the media habits um, of news consumers. And so we can think in Canada in particular, as the CRTC is currently debating the renewal of the CBC's broadcasting license, how do we think and support about the production of good public information, good knowledge about COVID-19 that albeit has to navigate a very complex discoverability environment of how this information is found. But yet I think it's very clear that that is a, an important function and one kind of direct thing that we need to continue and support. And I think pushing back on years of underfunding of public broadcasting and public institutions in Canada. And I think the second thing to say is that 
um, access to information, I mean, access to the internet also allows people to work from home, which I, I think is a reminder to say of the kind of the, the challenges of digital divides and creating inequities where certain people can't afford to uh, have a reliable internet connection, have to go in or work or can't telecommute. And so how do we think about, uh, you know, a internet governance strategy that is also ensuring the safety of the majority of Canadians, Canadians particularly workers working in Canada? Uh, Tina, do, would you have anything to add to uh, to this conversation? Well, um, I mean, in a sense, uh, we are trying to imagine what a healthy information ecosystem would look like. And um, uh, I think all of the speakers raises really good points. Maybe two points here, you know, for a policymaker, uh, from point of view of, uh, you know, considering what are the policy options that would address harmful effects of misinformation. They're not only uh, options, uh, the only options are not only legal or internet governance related. Um, so, you know, for, uh, I really would stress that we also need to take a look at uh, ultimately the individual or the community um, to, uh, to, to look at, uh, well, how do we actually promote the resilience of the individual and community to um, uh, misinformation or low quality information. I'm not saying that it's the only it, it, it's the only way to go, but it is important to keep that in mind that sweeping changes to the information system in infrastructure are uh, an ecosystem are not necessarily enough. What we've learned in public health is that actually only and merely providing high quality health information to a person is not sufficient for people and uh, communities to actually enact healthy behaviors. There's a lot more complex cognitive human aspects of what drives our behavior in the real life uh, in the end. So uh, we do need to pay attention to that human, uh, human um, aspect and you know, then ask ourselves what contributes to better resilience in communities. And yes, you know, um, pu uh, public health authorities do have responsibility to uh, share under in an understandable way uh, reliable health information uh, to to uh, their citizens, but in the end, how we would imagine a, a resilient community is one that doesn't only solely rely as a source of health information, reliable health information on the health authority, but that can from within. Um, uh, recognize and address uh, uh, health misinformation among other factors that affect uh, their their efficacy for for uh, being resilient, and that can be all of the other aspects related to inequalities and in parts of our daily life that affect also our decision making related to and and behaviors related to to health or any other aspect. So I would just add this aspect cannot be forgotten the human part uh, of people interacting with the uh, information ecosystem. Thank you very much. Um, and, and, and perhaps we could continue on that theme. Uh, I see a lot of questions came in uh, asking very similar points. Um, 
we one of the big uh, developments of the last year in, in the context of COVID has been the reaffirmation by many uh, countries and by some regional entities such as the EU of the notion of sovereignty over digital affairs. Uh, we've, we've heard that from, from multiple uh, political leaders, whether it's uh, President Macron, uh, Chancellor Merkel, um, the notion of sovereignty as, as coming back as a central theme of, um, of, uh, of policy making. And so two questions related to that. Uh, the first uh, is a question we, we received, uh, which is really around the European model. So do we feel that this model that the Europeans are putting forward, very robust, uh, very comprehensive, um, is the right kind of framework to deal with uh, digital writ large and disinformation in particular? Uh, and then the second question that also came in related to that is the question of to what extent can Canada develop a response uh, that does not uh, mirror what we're seeing from some of these uh, bigger blocks uh, and bigger countries that have this sway over platforms and can influence the way in which uh, they conduct their business. So can do we even have that capacity to act in a sovereign manner as a, um, let's say, a middle power uh, that uh, usually uh, hits uh, above its its weight in terms of uh, capacity to engage? So uh, the, one of the questions was direct, directed to uh, Elisabeth, so perhaps uh, we'll start with you. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I'm going to go with the second question um, to start off of, you know, can Canada actually even, you know, if we come up with our own thing, can we, do we have any power to actually enforce it? And um, there's like a little bit of yes and a little bit of no in there. I think that there are some examples where Canadian uh, policymaking in this sphere has been among the first in the world and platforms have paid attention. So the political ad registry comes to mind as an example where we said, look, if you're going to have political ads during the 2019 election, you have to have a registry. And Google said, we're not going to be able to do it. We're not going to host ads. So then the, the harm to the Canadian public of ads that we couldn't keep track of and couldn't do follow-up work on and research on, uh, you know, that was eliminated. In contrast, Facebook was like, yep, okay, we're gonna make it. And they made it and there were some flaws with it, but largely it served the purpose that, that we needed to reduce harms. So, so there are examples where Canada has been able to make policy choices that platforms have paid attention to. That said, the structure of that advertising, uh, that uh, repository, I fully expect to be different now that a US election has gone through and, and there will be a multiple other elections worldwide that happen before our next. And it'll be very interesting to see whether or not the structure of it complies to Canadian standards exclusively or much more likely is folded into whatever has been you know, designed in a more robust way for the US context and potentially European context. So yes and no. Uh, similarly, I think that there are uh, advantages that Canada has in terms of being kind of this middle power that punches above its, its weight typically as you described, where Canada's in a good position to be a broker between different, different sovereign nations and Canada's in a good position to be uh, part of a network of actors who are working towards better platform governance and, and regulation approaches. That is 
I personally think the better approach, even if we could have a, a Canada specific solution, I actually think that the global nature of information flows uh, suggests that we probably would rather have a collaborative approach to dealing with platform governance rather than siloed off versions of the internet in each country. That seems not appealing to me uh, for commerce and just for uh, people's daily experience of the internet. Uh, but a lot of that depends on what different different nation states want to do and how they choose to interact with those platforms. Thank you. And uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I think the, the description you made of what Canada can do internationally very, very uh, closely uh, re reacts to what we basically are developing at Global Affairs Canada as being this kind of conduit between these different perspectives on uh, issues such as disinformation, but also others in the digital world. So uh, very pleased to hear that, that, that there is some uh, synergies there. So uh, perhaps turning now to Fenwick. Sorry, just unmuting. Yeah, um, I think that first off, you have to look at the what's going on in the EU is a very mature, robust, complicated, you know, the Digital Markets and the Digital Services Act are, you know, wide sweeping media reforms. And I think addressing a number of different issues that, are, you know, are only partially captured or only partially related to COVID-19. And I think certainly, you know, that becomes a standard to which we need to be looking at. Now, how would we participate? And I think those challenges about um, international coordination are, I think, are deep ones and not necessarily well understood in how does Canada align itself in these different initiatives. Um, I think the kind of three points I'd make is that in, in one sense, addressing COVID-19 is the type of coordination issue that Elizabeth alluded to that you know, myself and Heidi Torek and Krista Nove have called for social media standards councils, uh, you know, institutions in Canada that would allow for better coordination between government, civil society, and platforms around, I think, identifiable problems and challenges. And so in one sense, stepping up and modeling how we might describe and better coordinate these, you know, responses, media responses to these issues is one, is one step. I think the second thing is that, um, we, we've talked about this, and I know Rory and Tina and Elizabeth have all raised it, is the monetization problem. And I think, uh, you know, Canada in the past has a long history of royal commissions that have investigated a uh, variety of issues, media issues, you know, going dating back to the Kent Commission on Newspapers. And it seems to me that the, the challenges and the problems about monetization are ones that have wide-sweeping implications for creators, uh, news consumers, journalism, and I think also for the Competition Bureau and how highly concentrated the digital advertising market is. So I think another first step would be being a world leader and really starting to address the consequences of uh, you know, digital advertising and monetization. And I think that that's you know, one step that it can do. I mean, again, I think echoing Rory's concerns, the kind of rapid response um, idea that we're going to fix it with one piece of legislation, I think really, you know, is problematic. But there are some simple steps, and I think some preliminary steps that would help, I think, advance these challenges. Certainly providing social media platforms through a moderation council or through um, some better legislation about what are the definitions of hate speech uh, and potentially what are the risks or ways that they triage problematic health information 
um, to make it more compliant with Canadian law would also be really helpful. So in that sense, I think there's some smaller things to deal with, but um, that's really the COVID-19 aspect of this wider issue, which I think kind of haunts everything we're talking about in terms of social media platforms, about there are consequences to markets and I think everyday public life that larger bills like Digital Markets and Digital Services Act are the ones that are going to address. Yeah, no, that's a, a really interesting point that Fenwick brought up there. And it just reminded me of the fact that these platforms are so multifaceted and a big issue is the advertising and, you know, kind of the monopoly that both these platforms have on advertising and the unregulated markets of programmatic advertising. Um, what's interesting is if you look under the hood, you, you know, Google and Facebook and other big platforms might say, yes, we're, we're going to take a much harder approach and we will police health misinformation much more um, in terms of, you know, taking down posts, labeling them, et cetera. But when you then look at how connected the, you know, the ads analytics um, applications of Facebook and Google are linked to, you know, anti-vax and anti-science websites and that they are essentially facilitating the monetization of these websites, um, it's, it, it kind of underlines this real double standard there. Um, but again, you know, given how niche this is, there are not a lot of people looking at that. Um, my concern again for the US is we need we need to build more robust oversight committees because as you saw uh, when you know Zuckerberg was brought in um, to testify before Congress whenever it was ago, like how unequipped um, the US government was to ask the pertinent and right questions. Um, so I think we need, we need independent bodies that are working directly with government as well, um, because it, it's, it's clear that a lot of these issues are, are beyond what our regular politicians are, are able to to kind of understand and, and they're just ill-equipped to, to be asking the right questions to hold these platforms to account. And again, what happens under Biden, um, we will see. But, you know, I my hopes are in Canada and Europe, actually, in terms of leading the way. Um, U.S. has always had a, and will continue to have a strong aversion to any type of regulation because it, it you know, it's the hyper-capitalist uh, uh, U.S. system here. Um, Thanks. And before we turn to uh, Tina for a final uh, word, uh, Fenwick, you had a point you wanted to raise on uh, monetization. Yeah, I just wanted to say quickly, we knew before the pandemic that the online advertising moderation fit poorly with health information. And so Google actually exited markets providing opioid treatment centers because they couldn't triage or assess uh, the quality of the advertisements they were delivering. And so I think we could say that we knew going into this that these platforms were ill-equipped to do this type of information triaging at scale. So, and I, and I think online advertising particularly points to it. The one point I think I'd make to you, uh, Flip, is that uh, presently, you know, you see calls for better content moderation are coming from advertisers concerned about brand safety. And I think this idea that content moderation is just something about delivering better, safer context for advertisements, if that goes ahead, that could really undermine, I think, these, these deeper conversations we're having about how do you build platforms that are equitable spaces, that are places that encourage democratic discussion and debate. And I think that moving and identifying this idea that Concerns about monetization, online advertising, and content moderation are different than brand safety is an important role, an important um, 
you know, it is a challenge for governments to be able to articulate because I fear without doing something more normative, um, a lot of these calls for content moderation are just going to be seen cynically as, as, as something driven largely by advertising. Thank you, and Tina, uh, for the final word. Uh, thank you. Actually, um, uh, Fenric raised really good uh, points here. I was thinking, you know, um, in addition to advertising, at least what we've seen related to COVID nineteen fact checking is the 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 challenge also of how fact checking has evolved uh, also through the fact that uh, largely the platforms are the ones funding fact checking efforts. Um, uh, uh, as well, and we shouldn't forget um, this mix um, uh, and a challenge. Um, maybe you know to bring in the 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 public health uh, person's uh, challenge perspective is that you know from what we've seen, just trying to on a daily uh, basis uh, practically work with misinformation, health misinformation is that actually quite a lot of problem is not only misinformation per se, but the fact that the information ecosystem is really also full of uh, outdated and low-cost information in general. And so uh, pol platform policies or content moderation doesn't necessarily address that, but that can also be weaponized and uh, outdated information, for example, can be weaponized and misrepresented for, for, the, for uh, in other contexts. So, um, Advertising and fact checking and uh, needs to be looked at uh, a lot more closely, um, uh, specifically in in contexts like health information. That in it on itself, it's important, and then it can also be used, politicized, etc. As well, societally. So that would be my my comment. Thank thank you um, all uh, very much. Thank you very much, Tina, and all of our uh, um, contributors today. And before I turn it back to uh, to Cal for the for the final word, uh, I just wanted to uh, to say that this has really been a great uh, conversation. This is obviously an issue that is top of mind uh, in Canada internationally. I know many of my colleagues across the government of Canada uh, tuned in today from different departments and different uh, perspectives on how to deal with this issue, whether it's from a security. Uh, from a broadcasting perspective. So really, uh, I think we are definitely open to continue to collaborate with all of you on this issue, a really important issue. Uh, and um, I hope everyone uh, on the line today uh, learned a little, a little something from uh, a really important issue of our time. So back to you, Kyle. Uh, thank you very much, um, Philip Andre. I just wanted to say thank you uh, to our moderator and our speakers, Philip Andre. Rory, Tina, Elizabeth, and Fenwick, uh, it was very important to have your voices. Uh, you all brought um, different expertise and things that, that the government of Canada is going to listen to and also Canadian citizens can listen to and build up our resilience to disinformation and, and think about what can be done in the short and medium term. Um, I'd also would like to thank uh, the Canadian government, particularly the Digital Citizens Initiative for funding this project, the Canadian Coalition Against COVID disinformation. Uh, we'll have future events coming up and doing some more interviews with experts uh, to share on social media. So thank you very much, everyone. And um, I look forward to future discussions.